How's it going, everyone? It's Wayne, and this is the Simple Hard Podcast. In fact, the second episode of the Simple Hard Podcast, after seemingly a hundred different rebrands of this podcast, it used to be the Green Pill, then it was everybody Wayne Shung tonight, and now it's all the way back to the Simple Heart. But the guest today is Professor Hadar Avram, a guest we've had on the podcast before under its former brandings. And Professor Havaram is someone who is not just incredibly knowledgeable about criminal law and, and legal theory. She has a lot of interesting observations about human psychology. And I wanted to have her on the podcast, not just because she was a witness in my trial and has a lot of insight into why and how we won, but because she has some pretty interesting psychological insights into why the judge and prosecutors made some of the decisions they made. And in particular, she thinks they're motivated by fear. Now, I'm not sure if she's right about this, but if she is, and I think even if she's not right about this judge, she's right about a lot of other people who engage in strange and sometimes wrongful conduct. I think it completely revamps our approach to not just evaluating those people, but evaluating how we can try to create change. But I think the conversation speaks for itself. So without further ado, here is Professor Hadar Avram. Hadar, so glad to have you back on in a much less stressful context than the last I know, time we spent I'm, a lot of time together in Utah. I know. I'm so delighted to see you not behind bars. And it's, you were a little surprised really by the outcome too, right? I was. I got to say, you had a little bit more faith than I did. I was really? quite concerned. Uh, things things took a turn for the better in the second day, but it was, mm-hmm. I was a little worried. Yeah. I, you know, I don't even know if I had more faith in this system. I think I really did. I don't, well, actually, I don't know if this is what you believed and why you thought we were going to convicted. I really did have faith in the people of Utah because I, I, I just, you know this about me. I just think that human beings in general do care about animals and they don't like, especially huge, powerful institutions torturing animals. And I thought that would be true even in Southern Utah. Yeah, I agree with you. And yet, uh, while the legal team was in the Airbnb, uh, I was walking around the town and talking to people and, <laughs> and came to all kinds of conclusions, some of which were probably overgeneralizations. Mm. I mean, I, I rolled into town Wednesday very late at night yeah. and uh, woke up on Thursday morning and the skyline there is absolutely gorgeous, was you yeah. know, blue sky, the, the beautiful rocks. And then you see this hor- horrifically ugly strip mall kind of <laughs> spreading underneath. <laughs> And in the middle of it all, there's this gleaming white Mormon temple. It's beautiful. I it, thought it, is I thought gorgeous. it was stunning. Yeah. It is gorgeous. I got some exp- some explanations about that when I toured uh, one of Brigham Young's houses, which was almost next door to the Airbnb of mm-hmm. the legal team. <laughs> and uh, the guy who gave us the tour explained that uh, he had a vision that the steeple was too short. Hmm. And then... Uh, Lightning struck the steeple, and everybody. You mean Brigham Young had Brigham a vision, Young not the tour vi- guide. Brigham Young had a vision that the steeple was too too short. Too short. Okay. And then uh, after Brigham Young died, um, apparently lightning hit the steeple, and everybody was like, "Oh, the prophet is speaking to us from the grave." And then they built up a new one. They built up yeah. a new one. They did a good job. It's pretty. It is very it nice. <laughs> uh, I then went to the Pioneer Museum, uh, where two truly lovely ladies walked me around all kinds of hmm. things. Uh, the town is really interesting because it turns out that the Mormons had fled numerous places before they came to St. George. Yeah. And then they sort of allotted by lottery kind of where each family was going to be. And they, they grew cotton. 
Uh, hmm. there's still there's still are some places where, where cotton is being grown in the town yeah and uh, and then these ladies were showing me these tiny pioneer dresses people used to be of course smaller so small. than we yeah. are now and I said oh my gosh you know this these dresses yeah, are tiny like miniature people and then mm-hmm. one of the one of the gals said uh, yeah now we have all this great meat and milk and that's why we grow uh. big and strong and I was like oh boy this is gonna be a <laughs> long weekend right. yeah and 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 I was I was a little preoccupied after that. Yeah. I mean, there was a vegan restaurant in town, though. There was a vegan Don't restaurant about in the town. Avatar. They saw There's at least one. <laughs> they saw an increase of ten thousand percent in their clientele <laughs> during this yeah. weekend. Uh, the guy who owns the bookstore was on our side. Was he? Yes. So I had like snippets of conversations. Pretty much, you. So had- wait, wait, tell me about that. How do you know he was on our side? What did he say? He, said, he just said that I think that these folks were righteous. Yeah, or, yeah. Okay. He said, "Wow, that takes a lot of guts to do what they did." Wow, good. Yeah. So that was that was really fun. Yeah. Uh, so people did know, despite the fact that the judge did everything he possibly yeah. could to keep the whole thing under wraps. People knew that there was something big happening in town. Yeah. Uh, it was more well known in places that served oat milk than in places <laughs> that didn't. But uh, so so. so, so wait, did the, the people in the vegan restaurant know? Do you think? Oh, the, the people in the vegan restaurant were ecstatic. Okay. I, we, we talked to them about this all the time. Their business was increasing so much. Their food was good, by the way. I yeah. thought their food was delicious. So. I agree. And what, what was the place called? Like. They, uh, Oh gosh, Gia, uh, Gaia, Gaia's? Gaia's. How do you say that word? I think it's Gia, Gaia. isn't it? Is Gaia. it Gaia? It's not yeah, Gia. Yeah, Mother Earth from okay. from from Greek Ancient mythology. Greek mythology. Yeah. Uh, gosh, what was it called? Gaia's Nature Cafe Garden or something. Well, whoever Whatever is listening was, was to this, good. if you get to St. George, go and eat at Gaia's because yeah, the food and, is and enjoy the natural beauty. Because I agree with you. We took a hike on. I think the. Was it the Sunday after the acquittal? Because we were acquitted on Saturday. I think the next day we took a hike. We didn't get to go to Zion because Zion was just overwhelmed that day with cars. Did you go to Zion? I did not. Yeah, I, was... I went on Thursday just hiking in the mountains okay. for like three, four hours. It's The thing is, I was trying to avoid listening to the trial mm. with the activists because sure. I knew I wasn't supposed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even so, I mean, of course, the strategy was sort of rolling through my mind. And I was sure. thinking, you know, how are they going to handle this and how are they going to handle that? That. Um, and now I have now I have an idea for a new article that I want to write about yeah. all this. Awesome. About how to argue necessity without necessity. necessity. Like yeah. when the necessity defense is not available. I think in a weird way it actually played in your favor yeah. that he was so difficult. <laughs> yeah, well I want to explain your thoughts on that for sure. But can you first explain what you mean by necessity? Because a lot of people sure. listening to this podcast will be confused, especially if they're hearing us discuss this case for the first time. And even, frankly, when we've talked about this case and with some prior guests, we haven't necessarily talked about necessity because we weren't allowed to bring necessity. Exactly. But this was the the doctrine that you and I have talked about for years now. And you've yes. written some really important legal opinions for us on this, which, you know, unfortunately, the judge <laughs> did not respond positively to the arguments he you, you helped us construct, but what is legal necessity and why was it relevant to this case? So there are many re- the, there are many reasons why necessity would have been the ideal legal vehicle for a case like this. And this is stuff that I've written about uh, years ago. Um, so when somebody's on trial, there are certain arguments that the defendant can make that are known as affirmative defenses. Mm-hmm. And affirmative defenses, generally speaking, fall into two groups. Uh, there's uh, justifications, which means that if there's a special situation or if you do what you do under special circumstances, then what you do is actually not a crime. Mm-hmm. And we actually want to encourage people to do what you did. And then there's excuses, which are also defenses. It means what you did is still bad, but because of who you are, 
we're not going to we're not going to convict you. This is, for example, insanity or being a young child or being mm-hmm. you know involuntarily intoxicated or something like that. So behavior sure. is bad, but there's something personal. There's a feature yeah. of yours that doesn't fit. Yeah, the funny thing about that, I just sorry, just involuntarily intoxicated. I remember that from law school. I just think, how often does that actually happen that someone's involuntarily intoxicated? Because the key thing is, if you're intoxicated and you're voluntarily intoxicated, you usually can't. Cite that for defense. You can't no, say because like, you yeah. take the risk that you you're take the risk that you're going to be out of control. Exactly. <laughs> but like, how many times are people actually involuntarily intoxicated? I don't know, roofies or <laughs> yeah. I, I guess there are some cases where someone there, slips there you something be. into your drink or something. Mostly, but. it's things that law professors invent for sure, law school for exams. But um, but the 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 kind of like the family of justifications include things like self defense sure. or include things like duress, which is if somebody points a gun, gun to your head you. and says, yeah. "Do X." Yeah. And uh, necessity is in that family of defenses. And basically what necessity is, is a balance of evils. So we're looking at what the defendant has done. And the defendant says, I did this thing, which is a criminal offense, but I did it to prevent a worse evil. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. it's crucial to show that you had no lawful alternatives, that this is the only path that was open to you. And courts over the years have varied in the kind of like how they measure the evils and, you know, whether the evil has to be to a person or can it be evil to property? This is crucial, of course, for for, us, for yeah. our sort of case. Well, yeah, in, in two ways. It, it's it, crucial it, because from a legal perspective, you know, animals are not considered property, but it's also crucial from a political perspective because we actually would like to argue that animals are exactly. not property, they're persons. So it's kind of interesting. But exactly. Continue. Yeah. So, so, so you have to kind of. Of course, the, the the key feature of necessity, which makes it ch- such an attractive uh, argument to make in this kind of case, is that you have to show that the evil you were trying to prevent is mm-hmm. worse than the evil that you've done, which would open the door to presenting evidence of yeah. the evil of factory farming and things like that. And over the course of the 60s and the 70s, and I think even the 80s, many political activists who did various types of direct action benefited from necessity, and juries all over the country acquitted people. So mm-hmm. we're talking about the folks that were doing anti-nuclear demonstrations and breaking into nuclear sites and things like that. And they sort of used that to show how what was going on in Central America was wrong. And, and, and jurors actually bought that and, and acquitted people to the point that the lawyers that defended people in these cases, folks from uh, the National Lawyers Guild and various other activist lawyer organizations said, you know, we really don't want these cases to be dismissed because we have an opportunity to talk about the things that our clients really care about. And then in the early 90s, the Supreme Court kind of put the kibosh on all that Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. issued a decision that really limits our ability to argue necessity in political cases and in direct action cases. And what the Supreme Court says is we're only going to accept necessity if it's what they call direct civil Civil disobedience, which means if what you are doing, the law you're breaking, is exactly the law that you are trying to challenge. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, when we do direct action in factory farms, we're doing both direct and And indirect civil disobedience because it's direct in the sense that we're showing the world what's going on, and that's in defiance of ag-gag laws. Mm -hmm. And we're also taking animals out, but that's you know, what the Supreme Court would call indirect. Sure. But generally speaking, they sort of left it to judges to decide what they were going to do with this defense. And, and I just uh, interject really quickly. The ag law is a law that forbids photography and videography inside of Factory Farm, which was in place in Utah when we did this investigation. It was actually struck down partly due to our friend Justin Marceau's incredible legal work in Utah. But we were directly challenging that law, saying this law is just unconstitutional. We, 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 exactly. The very actions we're taking are the civil disobedience because the law itself is invalid. 
Well, the burglary law, you know, we're not necessarily saying the law of Berkeley should be sure completely. You know, if somebody breaks into my house and steals something, I'm not going to say I don't want a burglary statute on the books. Of course, of course. It's, we're, we're not about abolishing everything. Yeah, we're we just about abolishing what doesn't make sense. Exactly. So tied to this, there's also the fact that if you're trying to argue necessity, you also have to be able to present evidence of this evil that you were fighting against, the evil yeah. that you were trying to undo by what you did. And that means that judges would have to issue decisions about footage from the inside of factory farms and laboratories and fur farms and all kinds of places where activists go to do uh, open rescue. The problem with that has to do with a really crucial point in evidence law. Mm -hmm. The big conflict in evidence law, and this underpins pretty much the entire law of evidence, yeah. is uh, that a piece of evidence is admissible if it has more probative value than prejudicial risk. Mm -hmm. So kind of like how much kind of like how much bang for our buck are we getting out of this? Yeah. What does this show Relative versus is this yeah. going to kind of like, you know, work on people's emotions and manipulate people in a way mm -hmm. that we don't mm -hmm. want to allow. The problem is that with footage that is really gruesome and upsetting what makes it probative is exactly what also makes it's it prejudicial, right? Yeah. Because of course people are going to see this and they're going to react emotionally. I mean, this is people and have, say that it's necessary for someone to do something about this exactly. because they're so emotionally moved by the horrific footage that we're showing. Yeah. Exactly. So, so, you know, so the judge <clears throat> might say, you know, oh, this is going to sway the jurors. And we might say, well, you say it like it's a bad thing. That's yeah, exactly what exactly. we want is for the jury to see this, to understand why they did what they did. Yeah. So did I just hear the briefing from the prosecution on this? I mean, yes. the specific technology, I mean, they actually even quote, and this is partly from case law on Rule 403, which is the relevant rule in Utah and the Federal Rules of Evidence. But they, they even say directly in the brief that the evidence could arouse horror in the jury. Exactly. That's and the term they use, horror. Right, and, and you know, I'm Talking reading... Talking like an animal rights act. Right, there. and I'm reading this <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, you know, if this is horrifying, then why, why is Smithfield doing it if yeah. it's horrifying? Like, shouldn't yeah. we, you know, all rise as one and say, stop it? Stop it, yeah. But, uh, so anyway... Wouldn't it be so, so nice if a prosecutor someday said that? Oh my gosh, it's... I've seen You know, something... I don't even know if we're that far from that. I've, we've talked to some prosecutors, I'll tell you offline, because I don't want to even say which cases right now, but I've talked to some prosecutors recently that might be sympathetic to that sort of argument, but yeah, continue. I mean, it's, I think that it's a really difficult position for a prosecutor to stand behind a case that they don't yeah. feel comfortable prosecuting. And yeah. I mean, I want to believe that most prosecutors, I don't know if the folks that we had dealings with in Utah belong to this category, but most prosecutors would look at you guys and say, here's a couple of folks who are trying to make the world a better place. Yeah. You're like, what are we doing here? Yeah. We've had prosecutors like that. I mean, I, the, the, the best example is... The case you know well, because you were helping with the disbarment proceeding, Jason Hayes in North Carolina. I mean, he hugged me after the trial and said, you know, I think you're all good people. And and he, he defended me when the state bar court in California was trying to disbar me. He wrote an affidavit in our favor. And, and actually, I want to talk about that a little bit, because that's kind of, in many ways, our defense in Utah partly came from our defense of the disbarment proceeding, because so much of the defense in that, partly from our conversations, mm -hmm. you helped us a lot in that, was, was about the value of the animals. It's, I mean, I but we have had you. prosecutors turn, you know, and it's, it's interesting, because I think a big part of the reason they turn isn't just because of how arresting the footage is, as bad as it is. It's also because personal relationships has, have allowed them to be open to it. And I think that Jason and I just hit it off. To be frank, you know, it, it was on day one, it was terrible. Like we were, did I tell you how we almost got into like a physical altercation? Mm -hmm. well, yeah. So we were face to face, like literally, and I'm saying to him, you know, you cross the line in this court. And he's saying to me, 
you know, you're going to teach me a lesson, Chung? You know, like, it was like, I felt like we were eighth grade kids posturing at each other, just like in each other's faces, these boys who were upset at each other. But, you know, I mean, I, I've told this story before, so I don't want to repeat it again, but I, it was actually my mistake. I was the one who kind of messed up. And interestingly, instead of holding that against me, that I had made a mistake and I accused him of something in open court that was not true, and I didn't do it intentionally, but I did accuse him of something that wasn't true in court openly, I apologized to him, like very candidly. And I said, I'll say this in open court too and say what I said on the record, I don't want this to affect you or your career in any way because it was a pretty dramatic allegation I made about him. It was basically that he had broken the court rules and potentially quite prejudicial way and influenced the jury. Um, and he, he just appreciated that. He just appreciated that I just, and this is what I would say. Like, I think people should, it's not a bad thing to make a mistake as long as you fess up to it. And mm -hmm. people understand and appreciate that when you fess up to it. So I think that's one of the reasons he ultimately was open to to the idea that we were there to help animals because he saw, okay, this isn't a pure, terrible person because when he did something bad to me, he kind of tried to fess up to it. So yeah, it's interesting how these things work. It is. Yeah. It is. So, yeah, so I don't, how did we get to We were that? talking about necessity and how oh, you have this theory okay. that we should, I, I, I love this idea, by the way. I'm, I, I hadn't heard anyone frame it the way you did just now, but I'm already like, I'm already so excited to read this paper because I think it's, um, but you know, one thing I want to say about necessity that, that's pretty interesting to me, having litigated now three cases nearly to trial. I mean, two, actually two all the way to trial and then all the way through trial, one in Iowa, we got right up to the point literally the day before trial, and we were ready to go, and then it got dismissed. One of the most disturbing things to me about these cases is I would love to say that the judges have been declining necessity because of some good faith legal reasoning or because of a genuine concern about the victims, you know, these corporations being re-victimized by discussions of all the bad things they're doing, because that's essentially what we're doing. We're trying to introduce evidence that the quote-unquote victim of the crime has engaged in bad conduct that we were trying to address. We didn't steal from them. We tried to address their misconduct. I'd love to think that that's actually what they're doing, that they're they're trying to protect these companies, or they're just trying to make a, a decision based on the law. I actually think a lot of it is just judges are a little bit lazy, and they don't want to deal with it all. Interesting. That, I, I really I, think in North Carolina and, and Utah, and I don't want to cast aspersions and you know you hate to judge people or assume what their psychological motivation is but i think with judge knight and judge wilcox a huge motivation seemed to be they just didn't want to complicate the case and they feel like this is going to make it so much more arduous for me and difficult and I, mm. a lot of the legal system just works by making things more convenient by the bureaucrats within it it's it's interesting i had a different take i gotta say really? uh hmm. i smelled fear that might have been a time. I smelled a lot of fear, and and I especially smelled fear when Judge Wilcox says, just, you know, here's, why don't you guys just take a mistrial? Mm. I think that he really thought that he could cordon this trial off, that he could close everything that was a real issue here, which was the animal cruelty, the gestation crates, like all the horror of, of, of living in that facility, and that he really could make it a simple burglary case. He kept saying, you know, this is a simple burglary case. I don't want to make it into a soapbox. And, hmm. and he, he was just afraid. And when the jury started asking a lot of questions, he felt like it was running from underneath him. Like it had mm. become this monster that he didn't want. He, so, I'm but sure, why was he afraid? What do you, what, I'm just trying to understand. Because whenever what, you're doing something that has a high profile, there could be ugly press. There mm. could be, I mean, it's just like, okay. it's trouble that he felt was above his pay grade and it, and it frightened him. I mean, I can tell this because I've been in situations in my life. I think everybody has been in situations in, in, in their life where, where, 
you have some fear about an outcome that you cannot control and mm. your instinct is to close your heart, heart as much yeah. as possible and in some of these situations what you have to do is actually do the counter effective thing mm. and to open, open your, your heart, heart. as wow. wide as possible i mean this is what happened to us when we adopted our son mm. uh i don't know if i told you this story uh It's, I mean, again, I, I was never a judge in an animal cruelty case, but we sure. take whatever an ember of our own human experience and we, we smell, you know, the other person's human yeah. experience. Um, so when we adopted our son, we went to rural Minnesota uh, for the adoption and it was very, very difficult for my son's birth parents to place him for adoption. They loved him very much and they really struggled to see if there was any way that they could possibly uh, parent him. That's and right. So this is an adoption directly from the parents, like right after birth. Yeah, this was they an were, infant and, adoption and, and from and the because, hospital. And this is, I think you told me it was because they just felt like economically, they, they, they could probably not, couldn't support a child. I mean, their, story, their story, they're private people and their story is not mine to tell, but okay. but the, 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 the bottom line is that... Uh, They really wanted to make this happen, and mm -hmm. they, they just could not. And a few days after uh, we were waiting for the relinquishment signatures to come in, we got a phone call from the social worker saying that um, they did not sign the forms huh. because they were And this still, is after the baby had already come The baby you. was already with us with for us. a few okay. days. We were in an Airbnb in rural Minnesota uh, waiting to hear from the birth parents. And she said, what do you want to do? Do you want to place the baby with some third party until there's a decision? And we just looked at each other and we said, if we only have our son for a week, then we're going to make it the best week ever. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I strapped the baby, uh, my son, on me, and we just walked around a lake. There are many lakes in Minnesota. And we just walked around the lake for hours and mm -hmm. we did loving kindness meditation, just mm -hmm. wishing the best for the birth parents. And just kind of breaking within ourselves this feeling that there was some against it's, here. Yeah. It was just, it was all about everybody Yeah, because it's totally coming. out of your control and you've made this huge decision to come here and expecting a new child to come to your family. Exactly. That so it was just so about, hard. you know, just releasing yeah. that fear. And, and it was very tempting to kind of, you know, clutch the kid to my, you know, to yeah. my bosom and be like, no, it's my, but, but, but that's not the way it is. You know, it's, it's, there really is no other or sides here yeah. and then after hours of doing this we came back to the airbnb and we had a message waiting for us that they decided to sign wow and then a few yeah, days i think you did tell me this before a few days That's later they came story. to visit and again they said that we're going to visit and, and again i felt this very familiar i don't know how this is going to go is mm -hmm. this just going to bring more sadness or more grief and and again we did could the they opposite. have taken the kid back at that point when the no they had already signed okay. the forms signed but, but, the but it's still just psychologically that would have been anguish. so hard if they had said like can you give them back i mean what do you say to a mom after that you and know? and just seeing just experiencing yeah. the having your joy adjacent to, to somebody else's, else's pain suffering. is yeah. so hard mm. and 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 again we we decided that we were going to open do our it. hearts wide yeah, open good. and and That experience taught me a lot about how you think that your instinct is telling you the right thing. Okay, you yeah. think that kind of like you have to close guard off. or close off and you have to do exactly the opposite. Yeah. And that's what I smelled from Judge Wilcox. Interesting. That he wanted to close. He didn't want to see the pictures. He didn't want to show the jury the pictures. He thought that if he was going to open this door, there would be just this flood of compassion and craziness and yeah. no boundaries and he wouldn't know how to, to rein it in yeah. and i think it terrified him mm -hmm. i mean i could hear the fear in his voice when he was telling you just take the mistrial mm -hmm. i mean 
for what it's worth, I felt the same Didn't fear work. for yeah. you. Because when I heard that, I said, this is fantastic. They should take the mistrial. <laughs> yeah. And 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 yeah. during the lunch break, while I was at Gaia's cafe. So, so the reason I'm laughing is meal. because for us, it was so frustrating because he was giving us a mistrial option because he wasn't allowing us to present evidence. He was saying, you know, all right, you've made a good argument that the, the state has been now presented all this animal welfare evidence and claimed their conditions are wonderful and they're, they've got these vets caring for the pigs and all this stuff. And so it seems unfair that I haven't allowed you to present any of that evidence. So instead of allowing you to present the evidence, and, and this is why I think for me, it felt like he was just trying to save work because mm. his main concern was, I, we can't have this trial going to Monday or Tuesday. It's like, uh-huh. you know, you realize you're putting someone in a prison potentially and, you know... If you have to work another couple of days for it in court, it seems like that's it's a reasonable thing life. to do. It's somebody's life's at stake. And for you, it might just be another case. But for them, that's their freedom. And I don't think it was another case You don't for think him. it was? I, okay. think, I think there was real fear. Yeah, there. you might be right. And that's I, such a more I, sympathetic portrayal, honestly. It makes me understand him better if that's I, true. I, and I, I kind of know this because I felt the, the same, same fear. Thing. And my yeah. thinking was, okay, how much more good money is this prosecution, you know, seriously going to pour, like, after yeah. bad? Like, how, like, are they really going to try Wayne and Paul again? Like, there's no way they're going to do yeah. it. And that part of me was thinking, no, of course they're going to do it. This whole trial is ridiculous. There's nothing to stop them from doing it again because yeah. it's a ridiculous situation. And, but part of me was like, you know, at least this way we know that Paul is safe because they're probably not going to pursue Paul a second yeah, time. Yeah. It gives you some breathing room. It gives everybody some breathing room. I mean, like in every trial, we made mistakes. They made mistakes. Yeah, everybody everybody always makes mistakes. Oh, I made at plenty trial. of mistakes in this trial. It's, it's, it's yeah. human. It's, yeah. it, every, I've made tons of mistakes when I was trying cases yeah. in court. It's, it's very natural. And and I was like, you know, maybe we we get better for the next time, blah blah blah. But then they're gonna get better. But mm-hmm. but there is something about me that is very kind of like you know scaredy cat, risk averse, you mm-hmm. know, sort of. And well, you're a mom, of course you're gonna feel that way. I, I, I feel guess. like all moms feel that way, don't they? And then and then <laughs> I, I have to say, your text messages were very sweet, and they had like I felt like it was my mom texting me. Not that you're old <laughs> enough to be a mom. I'm not saying that, <laughs> but it just it made me feel like I, I just got the sense that you're protective of me and Paul. And that's that's, that's how I felt. I mean, yeah. basically. Basically, what happened was um, we were talking uh, quietly in the restaurant. It was me and Josh and Andre. Andre, And we were talking about what was going on. And Josh kind of very matter-of-factly and I think correctly said, you know, we really have to think about what's good for the movement. And, Mm -hmm. you know, would a mistrial be good for the movement? And I said, you see, I just don't think about it that way. Like, Mm. these are people that I like and respect. And I don't want them to suffer. And, And moreover, if we're thinking about what's good for the movement, you know, isn't Wayne more of an asset to the movement on the outside with a license in hand than mm-hmm. behind bars in Utah with us bringing in vegan bars every couple of weeks. <laughs> like, I mean, it, it's really not glamorous. Like, like there's yeah. this, you know, idea that we're going to martyrize people. It's like, it's not glamorous at all. Yeah. And Do you know Utah state prisons have the second highest mortality rate in the nation? Oh my gosh. It's surprising to me because Utah is normally pretty well run. Mormons are a competent, responsible people, but... The prisons are pretty bad, and they're filled with gangs, surprisingly, too. Like yeah, a lot of white you would probably gangs. be the other in the mm-hmm. kind of like in the racial categories for the gang the that would follow you, file you as other. Yeah. Which is not a great place to be. I've been in the other in jails, and it's not fun. No. It's, 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 it, it, was, it was not an appetizing prospect. And I mean, I think that you guys have enormous emotional and personal and spiritual resources and that you would get through this. Yeah. But I was like... 
here's a way out. Mm -hmm. Just take, take it. it. Just take it. So, so you probably have on your phone like a series of I messages get a lot from of text me saying, wait, <laughs> please, just take it. You weren't the only person. There were other people saying this too. I mean, oh, Mary, Mary was making us strongly consider the mistrial too, you know, our criminal defense attorney. And, and I have to say, I mean, you swayed me a little bit, you know, because I went into this case thinking I'm going all the way through. And I, I, come hell or high water, this is the trial. This is our moment because... I just thought it was so important for us just to have that heuristic, that test point, you know, that thermometer telling us where we are. I almost think that this test, this trial was just, it was not even a trial of us. It was kind of a trial of the American public. Where is the American public exactly. on animal issues right now? And, and I just thought getting that data, getting that result, win or lose was really important because it's kind of like, you know, if you don't take a test, you don't actually know how much you've learned. If you don't go out and time yourself in the mile, you don't actually know if you've improved your fitness. And, that's it's a little that's a little bit of a trivial metaphor because obviously you know if you time yourself and you don't run as fast as you would have liked in the mile you don't go to prison for the next five sure, years or if you pick your jury well they're not yeah. necessarily representative, representative of the public sure. and, and i think that's a good point that you actually made in we those conversations that which we is, had a very these good are jury. curious people they're no, asking very good questions. very good smart people yeah and and i'm hoping it can come i mean it hasn't been officially settled yet but justin wants to hold the summit are you free in the middle of January? I mean, I could talk to you about this later, but Justin wants to hold this summit where we're actually inviting some of the jurors, and I think five of them have committed to come. That would be amazing. Which is amazing. Oh, I um, would love that. And to have that. them mix and mingle with you and, and Justin and, and some other guests that, I don't want to say who yet, but there's a possible animal rights luminary we're trying to get to the, come to this trial and meet some of these jurors as well, just to thank them and interact with them and have these jurors get a chance to talk to one of the founding figures of the animal rights movement and say, you know, this is what we did and why. And for him to say, thank you, you know? So anyways, it was, it was not an easy choice. And I went into it from day one thinking 100% we're going all the way through. There's no way I'm taking a mistrial or a plea or anything of that sort. And some of your and, and Mary and other people's exhortations did sway me a little bit and I wavered a bit. But the main reason I wavered wasn't because, or, or the main reason I wasn't wavering wasn't because I necessarily thought that your advice was not sound. I thought your advice was sound and I thought there was a real risk of incarceration. I think for me, it just felt like it was important for us to, again, get that result and for me even personally to test myself. And I still feel that way. Right. I still feel like incarceration will be an important opportunity for me to reflect and meditate and just experience what it's like to be an animal in a cage. You know, I think mm -hmm. there's something really valuable about that for me. Um, so anyways... It's, you but know, it turned out okay. It, 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 <laughs> it, it did. Okay. I mean, I was I I was blown away by your decision to continue and see what's going to happen. And oh. You both impressed the hell out of me. And oh, I was actually you. going home and I was thinking, you know, I sometimes say when people ask like, why aren't you doing this and whatever? And I say, listen, I have a young child. I can't take these risks. But the bottom line is that I just don't think I'm as brave as you. Oh. I don't have the guts. Yeah. I, I help in other ways, but I, I just don't have the cojones. I don't have what it takes. I don't think I do. Yeah. Although, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, the, the, there are situations where I've, I've done the right thing or helped people who did the right thing. Absolutely. Like, I want to believe that, you know, when push comes to shove, I'm going to be able to do the right thing. Yeah. Um, 
it's, I, I was incredibly impressed. It was so inspiring. In fact, it, um, I was in kind of a slump work-wise, and this whole thing just energized me to, wow. to, to a huge extent. Like, I feel so great. Well, it been, shows the power of your work, honestly, because your work was so important to us I, for many years. I played years. a very small part it, in Yeah, in, in this, this trial, I mean, partly because the judge just wasn't, allow us, wasn't allowing us to do anything. We couldn't, I mean, like the moment you started explaining how you knew me, it was, the prosecution was cutting you off, and you, you went, and, and he also just limited us in self, like, he, he literally, after the first character witness, and he he basically said, you know, we're going to allow you to basically say yes to you. <laughs> Does Wayne have you know a reputation for truthfulness? And, that, and that's it. And that's it. And and you can't even talk about the background because he saw. Honestly, I think he saw with Justin that it was influencing the jury. And and yeah. I did. You know, we've heard from the jurors that both of you were influential. That that they both felt very. And this is a huge concern for us. They felt like you helped verify my credibility. That your testimony mm-hmm. helped us back. This is someone who's honest. Whatever you think about him, he's an honest person. So when he says to you, these animals were sick, he means they were sick. But um, but the judge was not happy with it. He thought it was right. it was it kind of just getting making the trial go a little out of control again. Just I going in this direction, fear. he was not happy. With. It's fear because it's like you know here are these people. It's going to be easier for me to kind of close this off and talk about this in a burglary case if I think about these guys as these radicals that are on the fringe. But they're not on the fridge. There's there's these seemingly yeah. sane mainstream people getting on the stand saying this is my friend, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know that that I love and admire and respect and and it's. He, he wouldn't let that happen. I mean, when I think about all the things they objected to that I said, yeah. there was no justification to sustain any of these objections. Yeah, I agree. Really, it was it was completely absurd and, and quite unlawful. Yeah. And, and I toyed with the idea, I was talking to some people about uh, complaining to the Utah Judicial Council about some of the shenanigans that happened there. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that the, the juror that said that he knew what nullification was. This is, by the way, I, I brought this up in class because I, I think this is, hugely interesting. So I don't know if the folks listening to this even know what nullification is. So it is true. It is factually true, although not widely known, that when juries decide trials, they don't have to follow the law. Mm -hmm. They can do whatever the hell they want. Mm -hmm. And because the jury deliberations are secret, they can choose to just like, you know, completely flout the law and do what they think is the right thing. And uh, this is called nullification. It's not exactly a right of the jury, but it is a power of the jury that is very difficult to control. So there is very confusing law about can you actually tell the jury that they're allowed to do this? So it turns out that it is okay for the judge to instruct the jury that they have to follow the law, but it is not okay for the judge to tell the jury if they don't follow the law, that's not okay because it's not true. Mm-hmm. It's okay for the judge to not allow the defense attorney to explicitly say, you know, you can nullify, although defense attorneys can, and I think you and your summation got, got away with a lot more than that. Pretty close, yeah. Like, but, uh, but the thing is, nullification is a matter of general knowledge, right? Some people know what it is and some people don't. And this is just a thing that is true in the world. Do you think most people know that? I think most people probably don't know that. So I asked my students who, hmm. you know, arguably are interested in law things because they went to law school. Sure. How many people knew what nullification was before they went to law school? Very few. Really? Very few. And these are law students. These so they're going to be more students. educated than the average person. In Absolutely. And I'll tell you, jury. and I'll tell you one other thing, which is, uh, so my students do all kinds of moot court things like where 
where, mm-hmm. where they have like jurors and they pick like, you know, their parents, their girlfriends and their friends mm-hmm. and their buddies to sit on the jury. And I always say, if you're doing a mock trial, invite me to be on the jury because that's the closest I'm ever going to get to sitting on a real jury because nobody's ever going to sit <laughs> like, on the jury. Yeah. And so I like doing this. And those, these people don't know who I am. And, and just for fun, I always try to nullify because I'm a shyster <laughs> and, and it's fun to see what happens. <laughs> And everybody starts yelling at me. It's like, what are you, you doing? Do yeah. We have to follow the law. And it just, it imbues me with so much confidence yeah. in the jury system that That's people so actually funny. like feel responsibility for what sure. they're doing, even yeah. though it's a mock trial. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's some interesting parallels. I, I, this could be something you write about too. Maybe I should write about. There's some interesting parallels between nullification and necessity too. Have you thought about that? Sure, because because it, I, it, it allows you to kind of like step out and do yeah. this morality thing. But you know what? So when I was working at Harvard on the, the whole kind of necessity and animal cases uh, mm-hmm. article, one of the things that I read was this symposium that folks from the National Lawyer Guilds had in the, uh, in the 80s, I think. And lawyers who represented people in direct action cases, like anti-war cases and things like that. And what they said is, you always have to give people two things, the feeling that they're doing the right thing morally and a legal Legal hook. hook. Like they need both. And I think that in some ways, the fact that the legal argument here was actually pretty conventional Mm -hmm. and didn't use these things that ask people, ask like a lot. To nullify. To nullify or to to step out of the the law. Right, that this actually like allows people to sit where they're comfortable. The thing is, and this is where I'm thinking about kind of like arguing necessity without necessity, is that pretty much every word in the definition of these offenses, trespass and burglary and larceny and all the things that open rescuers are charged with, each and every one of them is a window into necessity. Mm-hmm. True. Because if we're talking about value, we're showing why the animals yeah. don't have a value. And then we show how much they're suffering and how sick they are. Yeah. If we're talking about lack of intent to permanently deprive, which is an element in theft offenses, mm-hmm. then we're talking about what is the real intent. And the real intent is to save. save like yeah. basically... It's, it's all different ways, kind of like Legos. It's all like different buildings made of Legos, but the basic sentiment is running through the whole thing, which are these are good people trying to do a good thing and save living beings from torture and death. Yeah. And, and it's going to take different shapes. It's, it's going to go through whatever Byzantine you know, structure the judge puts together. But that's going to be the basic argument. Like if, if, if the jury have a heart, that, that's, that's where it's going to go. It's just, it's going to go through a different path. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it just relates to this really deep desire human beings have to follow the rules. Like we, we really are normative creatures. We, we have a community. When the community sets certain rules, we tend to want to comply with them, whether they're fashion rules, you know, rules of language, rules of, of conduct, you know, it's just, it's necessary for survival. So there's this deep seated need that all human beings have to fit in and comply. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, there are a lot of situations where we're happy about that. Traffic rules, you know, we don't want people deciding, you know, who gives a shit about the red light? I think I'm going to go on red, not on green. You know, but, I, but, I asked my son about this. Huh. Uh, so so this is a question. How old is your son now? My son is five. Five, yeah. And uh, so when I was in my first year so of law cute, school. by the way. <laughs> He's, he's adorable. The he's the best. Somehow we always end up talking about him because yeah. he's, he's a star. Because he's the best. He's the best. I know. So so when I was in law school, in my first jurisprudence class, our professor, uh, Ruth Gavison, uh, said, um, suppose you're driving at 3 a.m. and there's no other cars. There's nobody. It's mm. like the streets are completely deserted. It's just you in the car and the light is red. Yeah. Do you run the red light? Yeah. 
And if no, why not? And if yes, it's, it's, and so I asked my son about this to see what he thinks. And it kind of blew his mind. He, he, he was, he was very confused (laughs) because then you have to think, you know, what are the rules for? Like, do the rules really matter? Like, is there any value to the rule if it doesn't pragmatically do the thing that it's supposed to do just because there's the rule of law? Yeah. And that made me think, do you remember that movie? I think it was called I Am Legend. Mm, Will Smith. Yeah. Will Will Smith is like the last person left in the universe. And then just him and his dog. And then what do you do? Like, yeah. do you run red lights? Like, do, yeah. do the red lights even <laughs> mean anything if you're the last person left on sure. Earth? Yeah. So, so it's it's the so yes, people. I think that people do. Wait, wait, wait what did your son say? I'm kind of curious now. He didn't. He was. He, he didn't was have an Very confused. He didn't have an answer. Yeah. He said he wants to think about it. All right. What about what's your answer? <laughs> I don't answer? know. So I think about this a lot because I ride a bicycle. Sure. So I experience uh, San Francisco streets not the way that they're intended because sure. the streets were planned for cars. The lights are planned for cars. Everything is planned for cars. Yeah. So they weren't thinking about bicyclists when they planned how the traffic lights were going to go. And there are many situations where it's actually not only okay, but actually safer for you yeah. as a bicyclist to, to run, run a red, a red light. light. Yep. Yeah. And a lot of bike people say this, like expert you know, urban design people who think a lot about bike safety would agree with you on that. Yeah. And, and I know that in some places it's even proposed to put, to actually put in writing into the law to say that for the bicyclists, it's mm-hmm. a suggestion. It's not, it's not a requirement, although, you know, that can also have catastrophic sure, consequences. Yeah. So whenever I come to a red light and, and I think kind of like, you know, there really are zero consequences if I run this red light. Like there is no, I'm, I'm at no risk. You know, I'm here on the right in the bike lane. There's nothing next to me. Like mm-hmm. the street is only on the left. On the right, there's nothing. Even if there are cars coming, they're not going into the bike lane. Mm-hmm. Should I just go ahead and do it? And some yeah. people do. And I'm, I always wonder, given the fact that these people didn't take jurisprudence with me in 1992, <laughs> if they also have this kind of like yeah. hefty, you know, existential crisis every of, time thinking, you know, government what does it law. mean? Yeah. What does it all mean? You know, I, you know, I, it's disappointing to me that even law students don't usually go through that existential moment. I think they should. I feel like jurisprudence should be a class that all law students take. In Israel, it is. It in is. Israel, everybody yeah. has to take philosophy of law. In do the people first do year. that in Hastings? Does everyone have to take jurisprudence? No. No, no and, and we you probably should. Propose should. That. I agree. I think it's really important because I just think it makes lawyers very cabined. You know, they, they can't really think big picture. And the highest impact lawyers are thinking bigger. You know, they, they're thinking about the longer term consequences of precedence you're setting, about what the nature of what the justification for the entire system of rules we have is so we can make the, the system rules better. And if you don't really have a theory of what the rules are for, it's really hard for you to think about how the rules can be better. Right. True. True. Yeah, and, and, and and I think that over the years there have been many theories about what the rules are for. I think yeah. I think open rescue in situations like that where you're faced with this abject evil and you have to do something are exactly the situations where you ask yourself, okay, what harm am I actually doing by mm-hmm. getting into this facility and getting out these sick piglets? Like who is really being harmed by this? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So I'll tell you my answer to the red light question. This might surprise you. What is your answer to the red light question? My answer to the red light question is almost always I stay there. I don't. It's so, okay. funny because I, you know, all these lawyers and prosecutors and judges around the country are thinking this is this law-breaking guy. But I have sat in the middle of the night, sometimes for like 10 minutes, just sitting at a red light. And I have done it before, but it's usually because I conclude the red light is just broken and therefore... I, you know, I'm legally entitled to run the red light. Okay, okay, but, I, but, but before you conclude that, this is where it gets really interesting. Why do you wait? 
Yeah. So I have thought about this actually. And I think a lot of it is just, I think there's a really important norm. I, I think we should. And I just think this is true of most of our rules. I think the rule has a good justification as a general matter. Um, I don't want people running red lights during daylight when there's cars and kids and bicycles. But this and is I, not people. This is just Wayne in the middle of the night. But I think there's something just good about even me internalizing that norm to such a degree. Habituating I, yourself habituating to myself obedience. And being able to say to everyone else that we all should be doing this. Because the moment you start allowing people to justify... And this is what the judge is thinking about my actions, ironically. He's saying the moment we allow Wayne to start justifying burglary by animal suffering, then everyone's going to break into farms everywhere and break into retail stores because, you know, you have a, right. a homeless person who says, well, I really need that iPad. So I've broken the Apple store because I don't have another way to get the iPad. I, I need it because, you know, I can't get myself out of this situation unless I have a computer. And th there might even be a good argument for that because if you don't have a computer in right. today's world, I mean, can you get a job? And, <laughs> this... and so you, you run down this slippery slope and that's kind of the thought process I have when I'm sitting there for like two minutes at 2 a.m. in some rural area just waiting for a red light right. to turn green. I mean, what this reminds me of is this scene in The Simpsons where I think Lionel Hutz, who is the corrupt lawyer, says to Bart and Lisa, what would the world without lawyers look like? And they have this vision of everybody holding hands <laughs> and singing together and yeah. there's rainbows and unicorns. So, That's so such it, a great show. So, so, so if the judge says, well, you know, if we allow Wayne and Paul to get in and grab piglets, everybody's going to go in and grab piglets. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. exactly. Wouldn't it be amazing <laughs> if we got yeah. all the piglets out of there? Yeah. It would be amazing. It would be amazing. I don't know. I'm going to, you know, when Judge Wilcox, I don't know if you heard this but he's apparently retiring in february oh yeah so he's um so there's no need to file a complaint because he's leaving the bench anyways. anyways um and i don't even know if i i mean granted you can file whatever complaints you you want i don't know if i would want that even though i agree that there were some very very bad decisions and, and seemingly biased decisions i mean even from day one like one of the first when we were assigned this judge we didn't know a lot about him and the prior judge was a brand new judge of the bench. She was a lawyer who had never been a judge before. Was not even that experienced of a lawyer. And I could tell from the first hearing, she looked like a deer with headlights coming mm -hmm, at her. You know, mm -hmm. she looked terrified. And she looked like, I don't know what's going on in this case. It's completely out of control. And Judge Wilcox, from the first hearing, I, I think she actually probably recused herself for that reason because she just thought this case is too intense. I don't want this to be my first case. You know, Oh, and he was probably bitter that he got stuck with it. Yeah, I don't even know. <laughs> I almost think that he might have offered himself up. and Because in the first hearing, it was very clear he just wanted to take control. But the way he took control was just by exerting this legal and moral authority over everyone and saying, mm -hmm. this is not a case about the swine industry. I will not allow this case to become a referendum on the swine industry. And that was kind of, that was his moral high ground. But that that's just, am, that's just he was just as afraid as the other judge was. It's just a different yeah. style of expressing it. But th this is fear. Like whenever yeah, people, rrr, 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 whenever people sound like that, it's it's because it's they're fear. afraid. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure that that's what was going on. And you know what I'm thinking? Perhaps now that you've told me that he's retiring, it may well be that he was thinking, "Oh my God, the last thing that I need is some ugly publicity to kind of like tarnish my mm, whole career, my career after my... you know decades on the bench and to leave with kind of like a bad taste in my yeah. mouth." So the, another thing that I'm now allowed to say, I don't think I've said this actually anywhere publicly, but I don't see a reason why I can't now is at the end of that hearing, and that hearing went very, very badly for us because he obviously was saying, I'm not going to allow any animal welfare evidence. I'm not even going to allow you to speak about your motive, you know, which is not even something the prosecution had originally asked. He just added it in for some reason. Um, there was like a hot mic moment. Did I tell you about this? So there's a hot I mic moment. I think we moment. heard the hot mic. Okay, so there was a hot mic moment 
after the hearing was over where the judge thought everything but shut off and you see him just like turning to his clerk and said, well, that was an abortion. You didn't hear this? No. Yeah, and then he kind of laughed about it a little bit or it seemed like he laughed about it. And we all felt just kind of puzzled and confused by his statement because we were all on WebEx. We heard this and he didn't realize we heard this because I think his screen had turned off and so he just assumed his camera was off too, but his camera was on, the mic was on. This was not on the record, but it was it, it was audible to all of us and you know visible we could see his reaction and you know it it seemed to me that he he just felt very strongly that there are these like radical leftist people coming into my community doing this crazy shit and my job is just to shut them down just to shut them down Mm. and and get rid of all this craziness and and again i think it might have been fear it might have been a good faith belief that there was something inappropriate about what we're doing. But I still feel like part of it was just this sense that a lot of people get when activists come in, like, what are you messing around? This is just too much nonsense and like it's distracting. Mm. Let, let us get back to work. They just they don't like anything that disrupts, disrupts business as usual. And they want everything to run very smoothly. They want and they don't even want to think about the reasons why you're disrupting business as usual because they're so committed to making sure the trains run on time and everything's smooth and easy that they will disregard even the the most compelling evidence that something has gone deeply and profoundly wrong with business as usual. You know, I also think that when when activists come in and they're very organized and very articulate, there's always the threat that you're going to be cast in a negative light in a much broad on a much broader stage than you imagine. I mean, this is this mm-hmm. picks directly to the things that I did in my dissertation because mm. uh, what I did for my dissertation is I looked at the way. Um, the Israeli army treats uh, kids who don't want to serve in the army. Interesting. And they belong generally to two groups. There's the kids who cannot serve because they just cannot afford socioeconomically to serve in the army. They have to help their families. And then there's the folks that have an ideological objection to serving in the army. And at the time, it was uh, either folks that are pacifists or folks that are opposed to the occupation and don't want to mm. be in the army. And the people from the... the and and, and the, there's all legal grounds for not serving? So, so no, and that's why everybody's being put on trial. Oh, and and I so see. and so what I did even is socioeconomic like, status is not a grounds for not serving in the military. Not like really, it. because the there's there are two stories that the Israeli army tells about itself. One of them is uh, this is a melting pot, right? People from all over society come together and serve mm-hmm. together. This is complete fiction because many people manage to shirk the responsibility. Folks yeah. that are ultra orthodox, middle class kids who bring in all kinds of fake psychiatric reports and like it. It is totally possible to mm. to avoid serving in the army, uh, and the other story is we all have to serve, and you know there's no problem serving, and mm. we can make it possible for everybody to serve, which is also not true because the army, at least at the time that I did the study, paid something like fifty dollars a month. Wow! So if you're a middle class kid, fifty dollars a month. Yeah, I mean supposedly because the army Jeez. takes care of all your needs, but really you depend on but your there's parents. an opportunity cost too. I mean, if you're not able to work, your family can suffer immensely. Right. Like so I if, worked so by if, the time I was thirteen years old. So for if my family. if you come from a family where your paycheck is actually important. You're really screwed. Wow. And these are a lot of the people that, that leave. And, and, yeah. and the problem is so deep. And then and, they get and, arrested for it. 
and then they get arrested for it wow, or, or they show up. up by themselves sometimes they realize that kind of the jig is up and they just yeah. they work for a couple of a couple of months they make sure that the bills are paid and then they come back okay so the fear there is kind of like the the court is of, is worried that they're going to have to face people's misery right mm. that it's going to be unmediated the kind of like sure. they don't actually have any way of dealing with these deep inequalities and with people that are so poor and so miserable they just don't know what to do with it except throw people in jail so kind of like they're afraid that there's just going to be a masses of them so they prefer to process these cases like an assembly line mm. but the ideological kids are a lot more privileged they often are the sons and daughters of professors and journalists mm -hmm. and all kinds mm -hmm. of fancy people again i'm talking about a left that no longer exists as of you know last week but <laughs> back then there was a pretty strong intellectual left in israel and i'll ask you what you meant by as yeah, of last week in a moment yeah we can talk about the election later yeah, okay. but uh, but you know these are kids who are very articulate you know they've read bertrand russell and they mm -hmm. you know they know all the civil disobedience literature through and through and they're connected to human rights organizations around the world and they're giving interviews in english and for 260 minutes in the breaks you know mm. during the trial so the judges are actually really threatened by the fact that these people know their shit mm -hmm. <laughs> and 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 they're they're worried about them to the point that um one of the things that i saw when i was observing these trials is that they get confused they don't call them the defendant they call them the witness because it kind of mm. doesn't compute that they're the defendants yeah. and and you know whenever because it the, just doesn't seem appropriate that we'd be putting this person on trial they don't seem like this, this sort of person very capable who's a criminal. person exactly yeah. and i think that in many ways when you have a movement that is really well organized and articulate and kind of like has a really broad reach mm -hmm. to various sectors of society and a really organized group of people descends on a town mm-hmm it's it's terrifying for the town. It's like yeah. you, you it's you're like, oh my god, these people came prepared. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And you know, if there's one thing that we've learned from all this is how important it is to come prepared. Yeah, absolutely. So 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 we came prepared and and that is that is really scary to yeah. people. And I think what he was thinking is, oh my god, you know, they've come with vans. They brought dozens of activists to town, like they're planning to make this into some sort of thing that I'm not gonna come off well, you know, whatever coverage there is, I'm gonna come off as like, you yeah. know, bad. And and rather than saying, okay, the real way to answer this in a way that doesn't make me look bad is not to be the stereotype that they're looking for, but rather to listen, to yeah, open, to, to open come to it from like a totally neutral like yeah. position of inquiry. I'm just gonna hold on to this as tight as I can. And and then he completely lost his shit when it when it kind of ran away from him. Yeah. Yeah, just so just like kind of your initial response when the biological mother wasn't willing to sign up. And, and it's, in it's, many a, it's, situations. A, it's a it's a very apt metaphor, I think. I mean, and again, I think it makes me feel more positive about the judge, honestly, because it's if it's coming from a place of fear, it's very human. That it's it's very human. It's very and it makes human. me understand like where it's coming from more than if it's just laziness or a power trip or something I, like that. I, I really think so. I mean, I, when I think about you know the many times that, for example, I've been in class and made to feel uncomfortable in front of a hundred people mm -hmm. and being like, okay, do I hold on to my authority? Do I kind of, do I let go of my authority? Like, what do yeah. I do with this? I'm really familiar with this idea that you're, you're in a, in a situation, in a room, in a setting where you're wielding power yeah. and there's something happening that's, that's kind of somewhere. making you look yeah. ridiculous. And, and you're wait, like, wait, what, what, what is, how does this happen in law school for you? <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm trying I mean, to imagine like what a scenario is when I, you're teaching a law school class. I mean, I've been really lucky that it hasn't happened, happened a much? lot, but okay. like sometimes somebody says something completely out of left field and yeah. kind of like there's some protracted conversation that's going nowhere and everybody's losing patience and you're yeah. like, oh my God, like yeah. how do I put an end to this? <laughs> and it's just, it's natural. And I think it's, it's anybody who wields any sort of power or authority okay. has to deal with a situation where they're going to have to share that authority or where sure. they're going to have to laugh at themselves a little bit. Yep. Yeah. Or, or loosen some of what they're trying to hold or apologize for something that they did wrong. And the, the fear that comes with that is very human to me. I mean, it's like, you know, there's, there's all this back and forth about cancel culture now. Mm -hmm. and, and I wrote a piece of That's an example I thought you were going to give, not, not a protracted question that's going nowhere. Right, but I thought, I, mean, I thought you were going to give an example of a student kind of trying to call you out or, you know... I that, saying and, and that something you said was offensive or something like and that's that. Happened, that's happened too. I mean, okay. I mean, things like this happen all the time now in sure. campuses throughout the country. But like, I'm thinking about a few a few years ago when the Kavanaugh hearings were happening. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot of chatter in legal circles about kind of like that Kavanaugh didn't have judicial temperament. Because and and he, Kavanaugh, for for those who don't know, because it was a couple years ago and not everyone's going to know, is a Supreme Court Supreme justice? Court judge who is accused of sexual misconduct in the context of his hearings right. and there was a huge controversy over whether he should get appointed but he was ultimately appointed he was ultimately okay. appointed so just, I just want to make sure everyone knows because not everyone's going to know these names as so well there as are, I do. every five minutes there's a yeah. new scandal and we forget but, <laughs> but at the time there was a bunch of my colleagues signed this big you know sanctimonious letter saying you know this mm. guy doesn't have the judicial temperament and I, could, I did not sign the letter. And the mm. reason I didn't sign the letter is that when I was a defense attorney, I represented people in sexual mm. misconduct cases all sure. the time because I represented officers in the army. Mm. The, the army has this very unsavory cocktail of throwing in these guys in their 40s. And because there's a draft in Israel, they have secretaries who are 18, 19. So mm. it's, it's like, it's a mix that adds to the difference in age, a difference in rank. It's just, it's a very unhealthy, it's basically it's a Petri dish for sexual harassment. Wow. And a lot of these guys have been in the army for a long time and they didn't get the memo that the way that they behaved is not okay. Mm -hmm. And they're, and honestly, you know, you sit down with these folks, they always come to talk to you. They're, you know, holding their wife by the hand they're mm -hmm. sitting with their wife. And I, I'd be like, uh, would you maybe feel more comfortable if we spoke alone? Because, mm -hmm. you know, things are going to come up that might not be easy for the wife to hear. And it's like, there's nothing I can tell you that I don't want my wife to hear. And then I'm like, okay, this is not going to be a truth-telling environment. <laughs> That's fine, I'm thinking to myself. And, but, but like what I saw with each and every one of these guys, regardless of, you know, what they were accused of or what was going on or whatever, it's always the same thing. It's indignation and mm. tears and shouting and slamming the table, like slamming the desk and, really? and kind of like always the same thing. And I think it's just like you are used to being in a position of control Power, yeah. and it's running away from you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen a lot of my, my uh, colleagues have this kind of like little cliche sticker on their door that says when you're privileged, um, equality feels like oppression. Have you heard yeah. that? It's, yeah, it's absolutely. I think it's true. It I, th true. I think yeah. it's true that when people are very used to wielding authority, it's a very difficult thing to, to relinquish or to share. It's very threatening because there's, it also comes hand in hand with very little forgiveness and with a lot of kind of like strident kind of yeah. anger and with a lot of mocking people, you're like, oh my God, whatever's going to happen, I'm not going to come out of it in a way that I'm going to be able to redeem my life into, into a sort of meaning. So, so whenever I see people kind of, you know, in this situation being flustered or, you know, doing the sort of things that we saw Judge Wilcox do, 
I empathize. I, yeah. I understand. You mm. know, I understand. I mean, you know, not to say that I don't vastly disagree and that sure. and that I'm not, you know, opposed to a lot of this. And I hope that in my life I deal better with this sort of thing. Yeah, um, that's a wise and beautiful sentiment to understand and try and appreciate and empathize with someone you disagree with so much. And you know, I should be trying to do better myself in that regard. I will say one thing: I'm definitely going to try and do in that spirit is when he does retire in February, I have an action on him. I've already put on my calendar to reach out to him and see if he'll have coffee with me. And I'd even fly out to Utah and talk to him. And I want to do the same with judge Knight in North Carolina, who probably disliked me even more than judge Wilcox, <laughs> believe it or not. I mean, there was a lot of tough moments of judge Wilcox, but I thought judge Knight, I mean, judge Knight cut off my opening statement mid sentence. Yeah. And judge Knight didn't allow any evidence of, of the animals, even, even the specific goat, you know, when our expert started talking about, the veterinary care they go to receive, he said, nope, you're not talking about that. And he's basically low-key threatened me with contempt if I continue to ask questions about the condition of the goats. So even the value of the goats, which I think this is a separate issue, but I think legally we have pretty strong grounds for challenging that on an appeal, and I'm working on that right now. But you know, for both of them, I think trying to understand where they're coming from and whether they're coming from a place of fear or insecurity or anger or whatever it is. I mean, just instead of assuming things, because we all have had people assume things about us that are clearly not true. And in many ways, that's kind of the problem with the prosecution of open rescue cases. They're assuming mm -hmm. things about the animal rights actors that aren't true, that we're there to steal something, that we're there to damage the local community or hurt, hurt a business. We're not there to hurt a business. We're there to save lives. Or, or, or they might be thinking, you know, here are these urban lefties coming in from the Bay Area telling us what to do, to do when it. we yeah. are closer to the animals because yeah, we've we been know doing this farming. We know what, yeah. what's what. And there's some truth to that. There are a lot of things they're going to know about farming that I won't know. And, and I think we should be humble and, and not try to claim that everything they say is, is false and everything they do is evil because a lot of what they're doing is true and a lot of what they're doing is not evil, you know, but a lot of things are evil too. And, and we've seen from, from history, I just blogged about this and I'm sure you know the concept, the banality of evil, but, you know, certainly given your background, it's such an important part of the Jewish tradition now, given what happened in the 1940s. But a lot of evil happens because of just... It's tradition. It's just accepted. It's become bureaucratized. And you know, that's kind of what Hannah Arendt found when she mm -hmm. was at the trial of Adolf Eichmann. It was kind of shocking how everything he was doing was just because, well, this is just part of the system. I didn't yeah, really have any particular animus. I was just going along. It's easier to accept these things when they're systematized systemized, for yeah. sure. So let me, um, let me ask you one question that, I, that I've been thinking about quite a bit, which is... Um, I'm sure you know Justice Jackson, the most recent Supreme Court nominee, is the only justice, I think, on the Supreme Court that has experience as a defense attorney. Mm -hmm. And and this is not just true of the Supreme Court. If you look up and down the oh, federal yeah. and even state judicial systems, it's very rare for defense attorneys to be in positions of judgeships. And I think, based on my experiences over the last couple of years, this is one of the fundamental obstacles to America actually living up to its principle of presumption of innocence. Because when judges mm -hmm. have been prosecutors and all their friends are prosecutors and all their you know, colleagues on the bench are prosecutors, their mentality is just so different <laughs> than oh the mentality gosh. of a defense attorney. It's, it's, you know, what I ask myself about this is whether it's something that people are socialized into when, mm -hmm. where they work or whether they self-select before they even That's start working. Because be, yeah. I can tell you that my students, by the time that I get my students, which is when they're in their second year of law school, they already know very clearly if they want to be prosecutors or defense attorneys. Interesting. They're, they're, and they're very firm in that belief. One or the other. Belief. 
Um, and and it's it's interesting to me because at that point, you know, some people, of course, know, and you know, they have family members or whatever, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. they've worked in the summer somewhere, and and they get a sense, but that people already have this strong ideological identification. And I've wanted for many years to do a study. I'm, I might do it at some point. I need to, I need to get better at the external grant game to be able to afford all the things that I want to do. But uh, what I wanted to do was put together a fake case that has evidence that is ambiguous and share it with practicing defense attorneys and prosecutors and see how they interpret it, whether they interpret it as inculpatory or exculpatory, and then try to correlate that to where people work, to how much seniority they have on the job. Hmm. Like I have, I have this instinct that when people just start working as prosecutors or defense attorneys, they're very gung-ho. And then at some point it kind of levels out and people relax a little bit. Hmm. But I don't know. I would love to be able to measure this. So what do you mean by gung-ho? Like seeing the world in a very certain way, through I like see. a tunnel vision, like everything you're going to see is going to confirm the case. Yeah. Let, 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 let me, so let me all give... defense attorneys basically think every criminal defendant is, is right. You're used and every to prosecutor holes. And every prosecutor sees every criminal defendant is guilty, basically. It's, or, 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 you know, yeah. or you're just used to poking holes in the case. If you're a defense attorney and you're yeah. used to seeing the case, let me, let me give you an example. Yeah. So um, about 15 years ago, some of our listeners may remember this. I don't know. There was a big tragedy that happened in the San Francisco Zoo where a Siberian tiger got out of her cage and And mauled somebody somebody to death. And that person was part of a group of three friends. And um, the city started understandably freaking out that Mm -hmm. there was going to be a gigantic lawsuit against the city, which of course there was. But these Um, guys were throwing rocks at the tiger too. So, okay. So that was the the allegation. So So now I'm acting like a prosecutor. Exactly. So, so, so. (laughs) Because it's an animal case. So, so. I'm defending the tiger. Exactly. So, so the story is that. Yeah, you're right. There's there's these prejudices. So the story is these guys are the criminals, right? They taunted the tiger. Right, they brought about the death mm-hmm. of their friend, and then they went to the judge and they actually submitted an affidavit to get a warrant. And they said there's probable cause that there might be, you know, incriminating things in their car and their cell phones. So I read this in the morning and I say to myself, "What a bunch of nonsense! Like, what are they going to find in the car? Like Wikipedia printouts on how to taunt a tiger? <laughs> like, what are they going to find? Are, are yeah. they going to find joints? Like, who doesn't come stoned to the zoo? Yeah, <laughs> who doesn't come stoned to the zoo? Seriously, in San I mean, Francisco. That in San Francisco, certainly. It's like it's so absurd. Yeah. So, so I go to the water cooler in my office, and and my colleague is there, who was a U.S. attorney for many years, and I come. You mean from, the office UC Hastings? Not, yeah, at okay. UC Hastings, okay. my colleague. Who has school. a yeah. prosecution background, and I was a defense attorney for years. And I say, Hey, did you see this affidavit? What nonsense. I can't believe that the judge granted this. And he's like, What are you talking about? These are serious charges. And uh-huh. of course, there's probable cause. Like, we're both yeah. looking at the same warrant. Yeah. And I think it's complete nonsense. I think he thinks it's totally justified. Interesting. So why did he think it was justified? Because I, 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 I thought your argument about the warrant seemed pretty plausible. I mean, like, what does is, what is what's in the car have to do with whether they were mauled or whether they taunted the tiger? He thought that if there are serious allegations that these kids did something to get the tiger to escape, then there is a construction okay. by which okay. they, they are culpable for okay. their friend's death. I thought this was just the city knew it was going to get sued and it basically used the San Francisco Police Department as their private investigator to sure. try and hold off the suit. And sure. I thought this yeah, was yeah, incredibly yeah. corrupt and outrageous. Yeah, yeah. 
And and of course, turns out ridiculous. There, you know, there weren't any charges, you know, filed against, against these yeah. kids. And and of course, the family of the guy who died ended up winning a gigantic jam damages suit against the city, which is exactly as it should be. Yeah. I mean, of course, to all our listeners, a good way to prevent this is not to have zoos at all, where of you course. cage animals for fun, and to have the tigers hang out with other tigers yeah. in, in the, the jungle where they should be. Uh, but so, if I remember correctly, this tiger jumped like a fourteen foot wall or some ridiculous height that they didn't think was possible uh, and they yeah. had to raise the height of the wall do we know what happened to the tiger they didn't hurt the tiger they did they, they, they did. killed the tiger they had to kill the tiger oh that's awful oh, poor creature yeah it was yeah. it's it's when and the tiger's just doing the ti- yeah but, the tiger's doing tiger way, things you know i think a lot about these situations where an animal is is basically defending itself or reacting mm-hmm. in a really you know whatever passes for normal for an animal in sure. captivity and then the reaction is to freak out and to destroy the animal it's mm-hmm. there's something about this that is so symbolic as opposed to being practical yeah. i see this with shark attacks in hawaii so, so a few years ago, I saw there was a there was a movie called Soul Surfer that mm. was making the rounds. It's about a famous. It's a. It's basically kind of a docu drama about a famous surfer who lost her arm to a shark attack. Yeah. And nevertheless, managed to surf with one arm and become a surfing champion. It's really inspiring. And mm. and and I went to see it. And it was kind of like this hallmark feel good movie of tragedy and growing from tragedy. And mm-hmm. and it's. There's all kinds of things to say about this film, but it was really interesting for me that the reaction of the town after this happened was to go on a hunt of the the offending the offending shark wow. and kill the shark. Now they are not 100 percent sure that it's the same shark, same shark sure. but there's kind of like this you know let's kill the shark type of yeah. kind of like pitchfork animus, and I think this is the same that happened here. Same with the dog mauling case that happened in San Francisco about 20 years ago. There's this, I mean. Rather than sitting and thinking for a minute, you know, what have we humans done to, to these the animals yeah. that they have to react this way? Yeah, no, it's really sad. And so many zoos are, you know, they do such a good job of pretending to be conservationist and caring for the animals in wonderful ways. And then you have cases like, have you been following um, Steve Wise's case with Happy the Elephant mm-hmm. in the Brooklyn Zoo? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's such a sad situation. Just when you read just the factual conditions that Happy had said, it's like, and this is Brooklyn. This is not Alabama. I know. It's, or it's Nebraska. This is supposedly an incredibly progressive place where everyone's like an environmentalist and we all believe in, you know, compassion and protecting the vulnerable. But, and but there's elephant is by herself in like a cage, essentially. It's awful. An and incredibly I mean, sophisticated, intelligent creature. So social. It's awful. I mean, I think about this a lot. So, so one of the places where I feel real discomfort and dissonance is the Academy of Sciences in Mm. California, which is a place that has this, you know, banner of saving the planet and, you know, doing the important, and it does serve an important educational conservation mission. And yet there are thousands of animals imprisoned Mm. in that building. And moreover, Wayne, get this, they serve meat in the cafeteria. Yeah. That's so interesting. I mean, how is it possible that there isn't an impossible burger like yeah. as the only option in a place like this? Like, d- does do they not like make the connection that yeah. this doesn't make any sense? I've written to the Academy of Sciences. I haven't heard back. It's yeah. it's, just, it's so ridiculous to me. It's a strange world. I mean, cognitive dissonance avoidance is a very, very powerful mechanism. Oh, and they abound. People are, like the, the, the people will, will twist themselves into pretzels of logic to, to live through truths that don't make any sense. Yeah. I, I, I know this because I have been that yeah, person have oftentimes. Everybody times has. Have. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, speaking of bending ourselves into pretzels, because uh, he's, he's meowing and asking for my attention. 
Um, you mentioned the election, and there are two elections, obviously, over the last few weeks that have been interesting. But um, I want to ask you about the Israeli election first, because I think a lot of people in America think that the problems we're facing with the right rising are very distinct to America. And, and there's actually been some pretty good research um, by a number of political scientists showing it's not just the United States, it's around the world. There's something happening with the world right now. I know. That's it's, a little weird. There's a rank wave of, of fascism sweeping yeah. over the whole world. So tell us what's happening in Israel and your thoughts on it. So uh, the recent election was a real blow to whatever little is left of the Israeli left, uh, which is that it used to be that Israel was a social democracy with a pretty strong labor party. Mm -hmm. uh, there are many complicated reasons, ethnic and social, why this alienated a lot of people from the left and why a lot of people vote for the right and against the lefties that they consider elites and, and, and the like, and why the left hasn't really been able to connect with poor and working class people in Israel. It's, it's a, the political map in Israel is a little more complicated than here in, in some ways and simpler in others. But, um, but uh, for about uh, 12 years, Israel had the same prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, who is... Uh, an incredibly corrupt, basically career criminal, mm -hmm. <laughs> enriching himself and his freeloading family at the expense of the Israeli public and stoking a lot of fears and basically kind of um, uh, seeking groups of people against That's each true. other and just sowing an enormous amount of hatred and division and ignorance and, and running pretty much everything that was good in the country into the ground. Um, not to mention perpetuating the occupation and, and you know, other evils that are happening. And, I've heard uh, him described as a smarter Trump. Perhaps. That's a good characterization? Yeah, yeah, perhaps. Because he's definitely smarter than Trump. He's a pretty slick guy. Mm -hmm. uh, he was the Israel ambassador to the UN for many years and really? speaks wonderful English and, yeah. you know, presents very well. Uh, he's a dreadful guy, mm -hmm. like really a monster. And... Um, my parents, uh, among other people, among thousands of other Israelis, were protesting weekly in front of his house. Wow. Um, it, his this house, is, like this his is personal some, residence. This is something that is not known a lot in the U.S., is the fact that there was for years and still is a very active uh, um, resistance movement to Netanyahu. People, hundreds hmm. of thousands of people go and protest, and there have just been so many corruption scandals, and this guy's facing criminal cases in courts. He's in trials mm -hmm. about bribery and corruption, and just, he has all these rich friends, and he's been giving them just incredible handouts in return for personal gifts for him and his family. His wife is festooned with diamonds from mm -hmm. these friends, and he hands them national contracts for, you know, security. It's just one atrocity after the other. And uh, finally, last year, uh, in, in the fourth election in, a, in the series, they managed to get rid of him. And it was the first time in 12 years that he was not the prime minister. And the government was a complicated thing to put together. Uh, Israel is a parliamentary democracy, so there, isn't, there aren't just two parties. There are lots of different parties. And in order to form a government, you have to create a coalition. And because the different parties have different interests, it's really difficult to get everybody on board yeah. with something. And it turns out that when the something is anything but Netanyahu, that's not enough to keep a government together, together yeah. and working. And I think I remember this was such a weird coalition, right? It was like a almost a far-right party. It was very anti-Arab with an Arab party. With an Arab party. All part in of the, the same coalition. First time, all part of the because same they're unified just by their hatred of Netanyahu. That was like the only thing that brought everyone together. Well, in, in a way, you could say he did bring people together. <laughs> he people together against in this him. ironic way. But not in a way that lasted because yeah, he's, he's ascended again. So, he's the prime minister again. So he's going to be Somehow, the prime minister again. Somehow, amazingly. 
And, but that's not even the worst of it, although that is plenty bad. Uh, I kind of feel like this is the future of America and Trump. <laughs> it's, it's really scary. It's Again, like because Israel it's, is five years ahead of us, you know, and everything. Oh, my gosh. It's and usually not, in criminal justice, it's the other way around. Every yeah. bad idea in the States gets adopted in Israel 15 years later. Uh-huh. But, but, but here, so, so that's not even the worst of it, because the third largest party in the Israeli government now is an extremely racist party that advances explicitly racist considerations that people who are not Jewish, Arabs, and Israeli-Palestinians should not be Israeli citizens. Wow. They should be thrown so out of the country. they're trying to disenfranchise them. These entirely. are people who decades ago were convicted of crimes involving incitement to racism. Wow. They are convicted criminals because of these noxious views. Yeah. And it's the thought that these people will now be part of the government is awful now as opposed to the u.s there's at least i'm i have less hope for the for the old country because uh the young people tend to vote tend to vote right why is that there are many and, and, reasons and the labor party has basically disappeared almost, the labor right? it's, party it's, almost managed, not even it's down to four seats the party that wow, i used to vote for the seats. civil rights party and this is the knesset house is, is that how you pronounce it knesset knesset? Mm-hmm. knesset how many seats in total are there 120 and only has four four and it seats used to for be labor. almost the majority party right or close to yeah it? but that's it that's like i think there's like Jeez. only eight seats or nine seats that are left parties in the entire Jeez. knesset wow the, the civil rights party that used to get you know in the good days used to get you know 12 seats yeah that's the the party I used to vote for is completely is out of the coalition, didn't even wow. reach the threshold. It's it's really discouraging. Uh, many people, including my parents, are just, you know, completely crestfallen by, yeah. by this whole thing. And, and people are wondering, what you know, what's the future is going to look like and, yeah. you know, whether there's any hope to get litigation on, you know, to try and do some things to, to help. I mean... I sent my parents to try and encourage them this uh, big ad that the ACLU uh, took out in 2016 after Trump Mm -hmm. became elected saying... We'll see you in court. Nice. And I said, you know, there's, you know, there, there are maybe things that you can do. Except the court in Israel is also a pretty problematic institution, yeah. losing legitimacy, and and there's very little hope. So why do you think the left got destroyed so badly? In Israel, there are there are a lot of historical reasons for this. I mean, some of them have to do with the fact that uh, Israel is a blend of people from a lot of ethnicities, even within the Jewish population, which include people who came from the Middle East and from North Africa in the fifties and sixties, and they were treated pretty shamefully and and you know mm-hmm, with a lot mm-hmm. of kind of supremacy and a lot of paternalism by the the labor left, and the, and they're very opposed to the to the to the left. And, and this is the population that in 1977 voted to, to kind of flip the government and voted for the right, which was a huge thing in Israel because the socialist left was in power throughout yeah, the whole time, time until yeah. 1977. So there's a lot of ethnic resentments about how people were treated and a lot of feeling that there are still, you know, festering inequalities in the public and that even though it's a labor party, it's not really a labor party. It's more of an elitist party. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of center versus periphery sentiments that Tel Aviv, which is this, you know, wonderland for vegans and for LGBT people is kind of, you know, is this bubble that's disconnected from what's happening, you know, elsewhere in the country. And and I think that Netanyahu has stoked these fears for his purposes. Uh, And add to that the fact that uh, the demographics are such that um, religious ultra-Orthodox people tend to have more kids than, than than the lefties. Add to that the fact that everybody goes to the army, which shifts everybody a little bit more to the to right. The right. Yeah. So young people tend to vote so kind of like the, the... Basically, the trend you're seeing is driven by young people as opposed yeah. to here. Wow, that's interesting. 
I will say the the way you're describing the Labour Party and its fall in Israel reminds me a lot of the Democratic Party today mm-hmm. in terms of perceptions among many working class people that it's a party of the elite, the coastal rural do- divide or the urban rural divide, I should say, uh, or the center versus periphery. I mean, that's certainly part of the problem of democratic politics. You know, we're losing so much support in places like Central California. We still have places like San Francisco, but pretty much all of rural America is turning. And this is even including the most recent election, increasingly even people of color in rural mm-hmm. America. We're losing a lot support. of Latino votes because Absolutely. we're not prioritizing this. Yeah, they, they see a they, lot of the kind of group identity stuff. I mean, for a lot of these folks, the lightning rod is the term Latinx, which they absolutely mm-hmm. abhor and they think is stupid and ridiculous. And they yeah. feel that this is completely disconnected from their experience and their concerns. Yeah. And it's, it's, just, it's just a symbol of, of a deeper kind of misunderstanding of what the left is supposed to be about. Yeah. Yeah, I think th- something happened to the left, I think, after the end of communism. It's, <laughs> I, I think, uh, I mean, obviously, this is this is We do better trite. in the opposition. Like, yeah, until maybe. Until the revolution. After until, the revolution, we don't do that well. Yeah, it just, it seems like, you know, from communism to this new era of neoliberalism, it just, the left really never found its theory. <laughs> so much infighting i mean i remember yeah, that a that's few a huge year, problem a few, too a few years ago tina fey did this uh sketch i think on saturday night live where she brought a sheet cake and ate it in frustration in front mm-hmm. of the tv and i was like we don't need a sheet cake we just eat each other <laughs> <laughs> yeah we'll just eat each other i mean one of the beautiful things about this trial that that makes me think that there's that we can overcome some of these problems at least within the animal rights movement but even beyond that is it was pretty wonderful to see almost all the animal advocates come together in yes. this trial, there were a lot of very conservative organizations. I use conservative with quotes because more mainstream still organizations, more mainstream organizations doing more institutional politics style work. I mean, even Peter Singer himself, the fact that he made a video for us was that incredibly was powerful for me because he's not someone who's normally known. I mean, he's, he's at an elite institution himself. He's known for more conservative tactics like animal welfare improvements. And yet he made this very powerful video saying what these people did wasn't a crime. They did what we should be. We should be doing more of this. I think think this was amazing. I've I've written quite a bit about the divisions within the animal rights movement. And one of the things that I wrote about is that the more conventional or mainstream organizations should actually be pretty grateful to the organizations Mm. that push the envelope because uh, they shift the Overton window and because of something called radical flank theory. Mm -hmm. So radical flank theory means that any movement benefits from people that are more radical because then the people that are more at the center of the movement can say, here, talk with us, treat us seriously because we're not as crazy as these other people over there yeah and 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 i think that when you do things that are really courageous and really out there you are pushing the envelope and in many ways you're adding to the legitimacy of the people in the center yeah i i also think that people just like and and respect you guys personally and and they they wanted to help which which is really valuable yeah i mean right now i'm seeing this whole thing playing out on twitter i just shouldn't be on twitter there's no point (laughs) but but i mean what what good does, does this do at all, but but there there's a there's a thing playing out on Twitter where it's kind of like the alternative meat folks versus the vegan folks. I'm like, yeah. we need everybody. Yeah, I don't like that. Either. We need everybody. Yeah. We need the people that provide cheap and tasty things that look and taste like things that people are used to. Yeah. And we also need to teach people how to cook beans. And we also need to rescue animals. Like, there's enough room for everybody in this yeah. movement. Did you see that piece in the New Republic going after the alt meats? Oh yeah. yeah I, I mean, to be fair, they did get some ugly press lately. Yeah, they have gotten some ugly press, but you know, I read pieces like that, and and I see animal rights advocates, including close friends of mine, is really cheering that stuff on, and 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 I'm very concerned because I think that 
you know, whatever you have to say about something like Bruce Friedrich, for example, and I, and I know a lot of people who criticize the alt meat sector wouldn't say that Bruce Friedrich is a bad person. So I'm not even trying to. I have a ton of respect for him. I think Bruce he's is amazing. an amazing guy. He's 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 been hugely influential in the animal rights movement for many years. He's a thoughtful person who, no matter what you think of his opinions, it's hard to argue that he hasn't come to a good faith reason conclusion totally. about what the right and, and I also are for think, him. I also think that he is right in saying that the big scale change of really moving a critical mass of people is only going to happen yeah. with products that are as cheap and tasty, tasty as yeah. animal products. I think, yeah. I think that's, uh, sadly, I think that is true. Yeah, I don't even know if I agree with that, but I think that it's a reasonable position to take, and I'm glad someone is advocating for that sector in the way that he is. But the most important thing is, and this is what you lose sight of when it's just about tweets and, and media and social media rather than actually making relationships and seeing people who they actually are, is that Bruce is also just a profoundly generous person. Mm -hmm. Anyone, have you interacted with him at all? No, no. Yeah, I, you should if you get a chance. I would love to. He's just one of the kindest people. Every time I'm in D.C., he lets me crash at his house. He lets me drive his car. He's he's not someone who lives in an extravagant way. He's got the same like row house and, and I think it's Maryland. Yeah, it's in Silver Spring, Maryland that he's, I think he's lived in for probably decades. Um, he has a very economical car. And he's just... There are obvious reasons that I don't work together with him. We're mm -hmm. working in such different spaces. Sure. And he's doing lobbying. He's working with these big corporations. He's often trying to get money from exactly the same corporations that are trying to arrest me. You know, like mm -hmm. <laughs> the Smithfields of sure. Because he wants to invest them in all me. And I think that's great. I think someone like Bruce should be working with them. Um, so we don't work together publicly pretty much at all. But this is someone who privately, in every instance where I've just had a personal need, even just I'm struggling with some personal situation. I know I can count on him. He's he's a good person. It's, and, it really takes everybody. And, I mean, I'm thinking yeah. about what Leah Garces is doing. You know, talking to chicken farmers, chicken farmers about how yeah. to convert their their you know farms into the hemp farms. farms. Yeah. I mean, it's just there really is a room for everybody. Yeah, and, I agree. And 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 it was it was nice to see the beautiful side of yeah. everybody during this because it was very sorely needed. Yeah, it is, and it's needed on the left too, and really just not even on the left in America. You know, I think. I think there's there's merit to to reaching out to people like Judge Wilcox and and Von Christensen and Janice McCannis and actually the the summit that we're planning or Justin is planning I should say at the University of Denver we actually have invited the prosecutors too. Do you so, think they'll show up? So they wrote back to me and said they wouldn't, um, but I'm going to work on them. And and I I mean <laughs> what we have to convince them of is that our goal here is not to shame them and you know because obviously they lost this trial and it, it even if this wasn't some huge political controversy i think it'd be hard to join a summit <laughs> about a trial that you just lost like that's just yeah, never in a front fun of thing an audience that is obviously not sympathetic exactly to, to exactly it's going to be really hard and it would take an extraordinarily brave person so i think there are two things we need to accomplish if we're actually going to get them to come and we're inviting the attorney general of utah too so i'm hoping sean reyes comes and, and then we'll conclude because it's getting late and you've got a kid and, and you're yawning so i know you got to get hmm. back home i think one we have to find a place that feels safe to them right that doesn't feel like you're going to be put on the spot. Um, and that might even mean not having them speak to the public, maybe having them in some private conversations between just the lawyers at the summit and the jurors mm -hmm. too. And that might, that'd be a powerful thing just for me and Janice McCannis or Vaughn Christensen and Justin and you sitting in a room talking about these issues. 
without the spotlight and the public attention and the judgment that comes from scrutiny. I think that would be interesting. I, I would be very pleasantly surprised if, if, if they decide to come and I'm not holding my breath. Yeah. Again, because of everything we've talked about, yeah, because of right. fear and because yeah, how strong right. fear is in these situations. Yeah. Um, there is so much potential in these conversations. It's, it's really amazing. I mean... When I think about the many people who have told me that they read your op-ed in the New York Times and it really made them think and, mm -hmm. and you know, they're reducing meat, it's, mm, it's you know, every good. little thing helps, really. Yeah. So the, the other thing, and this is much more aspirational. So the first thing I was thinking, and this is less aspirational, is just let's create a safe space for them. But the bigger hope I have inviting these prosecutors is that one of them just genuinely turns and realizes, you know what, I have an opportunity just like the stories of redemption are always so powerful, right? The, the former cattle ranchers, like Leah Garces is working with these, mm -hmm. these chicken farmers who are trying to become mushroom farmers and realize, you know what? This factory farming industry is bad for everybody. It's bad for me. It's bad for the animals. Let's make something plant-based. It's beautiful and good for the world rather than it causes harm and suffering. Imagine a prosecutor who at one point is prosecuting animal rights activists who turns around and says, no, I don't, I don't believe in this anymore. I think we need to hold the corporations accountable. And, and, and Vaughn is... In my opinion, I know other people have different opinions of Vaughn Christensen. I had some good moments with him during the trial. And he strikes me as a person of integrity and as a person who cares about his community and hopefully will someday see that Beaver County, Utah, is not served by Smithfield Foods. They do not give a damn about him and his people at all. This is a multi-billion dollar international conglomerate. And if I can convince him that, look, this trial wasn't about you. It was about Smithfield. And you do not have to link your fate to Smithfield. In fact, you can become the hero of the story by saying, you know what? I, there was a point where I, I had hitched my county and my people's wagon to this corporation, and now I've realized, I'm not even saying necessarily bring a prosecution, because I know that's, that's a far cry, and that might take another decade of work for us to get to the point that a prosecutor in that situation is brave enough to go after a huge corporation that employs one out of four people in his county. But even just to get, a, get him to say, make a statement and say, you know what? Mm. I understand why people are doing this because we have our concerns about Smithfield as well. That would be very, very powerful for you me. You know, as, as you're saying this, the parallels between factory farm towns and prison farms is just so stark mm. to me because I can see how, how poisonous it is for a company town to have that be the company. Yeah. It's, I can see how having some companies is amazing for a town. Like if, you know, if you have college towns and the college genuinely makes life better yep, for, for everybody, everybody in the town, town. Yeah. you know, I, I can see a lot of things like that, but it's having that be the livelihood of, of the such a big county. chunk of the people yeah. and having just kind of like the, the murky morality, the sanitation, the kind of yeah. like all the problems that come with that basically infest your whole city yeah. Is is so appalling. It's it's it shouldn't take that much courage for somebody to stand up and say, you know what? Yeah, this you know our our economy is built on something that is ultimately not good for us. We need to figure out how to build it on something else. I mean, I think about St. George, and and how it could be this capital of endurance and triathlon and mountain mm -hmm. biking. Maybe it already is. I, yeah. I've certainly it's a beautiful seen place. people. It's a beautiful place. Yeah, yeah. And so, so with Beaver County. I mean, one thing I will agree with with Vaughn is when he delivered both his opening statement and closing statement and talked about the rolling hills of Beaver County and how beautiful some of those landscapes were. I mean, we saw Washington County adjacent to it, but Beaver County has a lot of beautiful spaces too. 
And wouldn't it be great if we just cherished that beauty instead of destroying it? Right. And, 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 and building to have farms the, and manure lagoons and Exactly. To have the, the, the guts to, to understand that yeah. these manure lagoons are not the beauty of Beaver County. They're, yeah, they're, they're, they're everything that is ugly about, yeah. about the world. Is, the beauty comes from kindness and connection. Exactly. And, and that's where I hope that Vaughn and, and the rest of the elected officials of Beaver County move. But we're getting, it's getting late, and I know you've got a kid. You probably have to get back to it. Are any last thoughts? about the trial, about the current political situation we're in? I think that the, the, the theme today was a lot about fear and how to get over fear. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I think maybe we should all think about, maybe we should also talk about this some other opportunity, is how once you let go of the fear, what a wonderful release that is. Yeah, it is. It's, I remember that uh, I once read uh, Paul Monette's Becoming a Man, which is one of my favorite books. It's about his coming out as a gay man, and he has such a beautiful way with language. And he says, um, there is a pain that stops when you come out of the closet. Mm. And I think it's the same with every closet of yeah. fear. It's kind of like holding on to cruelty, holding on to animosity. It's like there is a pain that stops where you step out of that matrix, and you're like, I just don't want to live like this. Yeah, It's such a beautiful release. It takes a lot of guts to get there. But once you're there, you're like, why didn't I come here earlier? This yeah. is such a good place to it be. So, so maybe at least I'll make it my homework for this week to think about, you know, what fears am I holding on to and, and where can I find the beauty of like divesting from that? Yeah, that's a beautiful <laughs> thought. And I think one of the most important things is just identifying it, naming it and saying, this is, this is a fear. Because once you put a name on it, you realize it's not necessarily me. It's there's something outside of me. This this resentment or this fear, this anxiety I have about a situation that I can actually separate myself from. That's mm -hmm. an incredibly powerful psychological mechanism, and it does give us a lot of not just contentment and peace, but also power. I mean, it makes us more powerful. And we're not weighed down by that. So it's a it's a great sentiment. In. All right, thank you, Hadar. I'm I'm excited to to have the next conversation with you, and I'm sure we'll have it again sometime soon. But I'll give you the details of what's happening in January, and I hope people listen to this podcast think about coming too, because um, it's probably going to be January 13th, 15th. Well, um, I'm sure you, if Justin is come? organizing, it'll be great. Yeah, uh, can you come? I'm not sure. Okay, uh, so I'll, fam fam <laughs> I'll family say. issues. I would love to come, but okay. I'm teaching in two places in the spring, sure. and but hopefully I can make it. Are happen. you teaching at Berkeley again? I'm teaching at Berkeley and at and, Hastings. Okay, that is such a huge course. Though. <laughs> I don't know how you do that. That's that's a little insane, <laughs> but you know it is true. You but do you. The, the students are good, and the money is fine, and yeah, and and right. and I get to work out in Berkeley. That's awesome. at the RSF. So nice. all right, well I'll <laughs> let you know, and I hope you can come. But if you can't, maybe we can find a way for you to participate. That uh, would be from great. San Francisco. Thank you so much and we'll see you all again sometime soon bye-bye as usual super fun conversation Fadar really appreciative of her for coming on I want to say uh, first of all to all of you however that in the spirit of trying to have more successes like the Smithfield trial I want to let you know that I'm going to be doing two trainings in the next couple months one is on December 3rd in San Francisco and the other is on January 14th in Denver, Colorado. And both of these trainings relate to defending investigations and rescues, and in, in fact, to executing investigations and rescues. And even if you're not someone who is interested in taking on any legal risks, it'll give you enormous insight into how these investigations happen, how we defend them, and how we won um, the trial in Utah just a few weeks ago. And everybody can play a role. And these outcomes. It's not just the people who are on the front lines, but the people writing press releases, the lawyers behind the scenes, the people raising funds for us, the expert witnesses who we consult with. 
to gain more insight into how to properly win these cases. So if you're interested in that, please um, look out for invitations to those events on December 3rd in San Francisco, January 14th as part of a trial summit in Denver. The other thing I want to say is we're still looking for a paralegal. So if you happen to know anyone who is a paralegal and interested in animals and animal rights in the Bay Area, please let us know because we desperately need some legal and administrative help. So as usual, I want to thank everyone who's involved in this podcast, Lola Fakis for editing, Priya Sahani, Ronnie Rose, Julie Waldrop, Dean Wierzakowski for being a part of the team, and to all of you, thank you for listening, for sharing this podcast with someone who might be interested in it, for rating it in whatever podcast app you might use, and for just being you. Until next time, thanks so much.